Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, broadcasting to you from beautiful Los Angeles, this is Dr. Santosh, your neighborhood friendly pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. I'm going to apologize in advance if I'm a bit loopy today. There's yeah, stuff likewise. going on. Uh, <laughs> let's let's not get into it. There's personal details. <laughs> Radioactive spiders may be involved. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, <laughs> an infinity gem, perhaps. Some vibranium, a little mm-hmm. bit of vibranium. Guys, it's July, and that means it's time. By the time you're hearing this, I will be... At San Diego Comic Con, can we can we tell them about your costume, or do they have to find out? You can look it up on Twitter, probably. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, at first, like because you were showing me things, you you were showing me like a mold plaster cast of like an eye of Agamotto, but it was it it looked really weird because it was like eye of Agamotto, but then it was like waffles. And I was like, Josh. Who doesn't love waffles? Yeah, and I was like, Josh, what is going on? And I responded to you that I opted to go for a mashup this year due to last year's <laughs> success of oh. Yondu Poppins. Oh, guys, please look up Yondu Poppins. But this year, with the success of Yondu Poppins, I have opted to do a mashup of Doctor Stranger Things. Ah, I love it. <laughs> so uh, I will have my eye of Egomoto. <laughs> All of this unnecessary buildup is simply to tell you that it is time for our yearly comic book medicine. Sound effects, sound effects, sound effects. Listen, we don't have the budget for fancy sound effects, so... Uh... <laughs> you know what? Mouth sound effects are the best ever, so... You guys, you're welcome, is what I'm trying to say. You're welcome for our mouth sound effects. Pew, 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 pew. So so let's get into it. For those of you unfamiliar with the concept, the previous week we had last year's comic book medicine up. And every year, Santosh and I go digging through the annals of past issues (laughs) to find... Delightful little comic book nuggets to dig out and present to you of medicine <laughs> in pop culture. 
Ah, Dan. I was like, I have a window to correct this, and you just railroaded me. Faster than a speeding correction. (laughs) All right. Let's get started. One of the first trailers I'm super excited about is Ultra Predator, and that actually makes me think of a few years back, we were seeing a lot of versus movies. Um, One of them, Alien versus Predator. And Alien is a surprisingly interesting concept. Very original for sci-fi, but I thought we'd talk about it from a bit of a medical perspective and look at first the reproductive cycle of Xenomorph. Now, some of you may be familiar with, uh, because science, who has done a version of this, and both of us use the same source, which is the Wayland yutani report from New York Comic Con 2013. Doesn't that sound so authoritative? I mean, it's beautiful. And by the way, we're about to get deep, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to chest burst this thing out. This is this is a complex life cycle. Now, Santosh, have you seen the original Alien film with one of the baddest of all the asses, Ripley? Sigourney Weaver, of course. Great great as Ripley and as Dana slash Zool. There is no Dana, only Zool. Xenomorphs, the alien from Alien, start as ovomorphs, which are, you know, tiny little eggplants that bloom like flowers when you get all close to them. And they open up (laughs) and you go, my, what fascinating alien plant life is (laughs) (laughs) and so that's the one that you saw when they crash landed on that planet you know the the spaceship and people were like hey i have an idea let's go out into the unknown dark space that's never gone badly better investigate the famous last (laughs) words of white explorers everywhere so ovomorphs are laid by a queen and they have a symbiotic relationship with the facehuggers that live inside and can sense or detect when a potential host creature approaches. That way they can open their tops. So that's the first stage. The facehugger is the second stage of the xenomorph life cycle. And at its core, it's a delivery system for inserting xenomorph DNA into a host. Now, this has a few parallels to spermatophores. Now, spermatophores are creatures usually insects, maybe a couple fish, I think even sharks, who deposit the sperm outside of the body, and the female usually has a collecting receptacle also outside of the body, so all fertilization takes place without any creatures bumping anything ugly. Yeah, this is the process of spawning, right? So when we think about, for instance, the salmon going back upstream to spawn, Um, What the females will do is just lay a bunch of eggs, and then the males will spawn, meaning they'll throw out the sperm into the water, and the sperm will actually just float down and, you know, find the eggs. And that's Um, why I never go swimming. (laughs) That and several (laughs) other things. Dude, I'm trying to look for, like, a concise chart of alien life cycle based on various movies, and I landed on Pinterest. Like, you know, little old housewives looking for decorations for wallpaper. And then all of a sudden, yeah, have you, seen you get like... About cake making on Pinterest? Some of those housewives can be downright vicious, man. You do not want to <laughs> mess with them. Those are the real queens. And talk about your face huggers. So... Oh, that's true. (laughs) That's true. Okay, so we've got an egg. And so the egg doesn't just host the facehugger, right? So the facehugger gets in there separately and like symbiotically incubates in the ovomorph. Right. Now, after a ovomorph launches a facehugger at a face, it delivers a (laughs) knot of cells, uh, which is basically an embryo through the mouth of the host. Right. And I have an anatomical picture of this. Uh, kind of put up and everything where they actually have the uh, the tail going through the oropharynx and like pushing the tongue it's down. It's basically an intubation. So, well, it's a terrible intubation because yeah. it executes this goal by it clings to the host's face and tightens the tail yeah. to minimize oxygen moving to the brain. So the first thing you do right. is you gasp. That lets it get its thing, its uh, stinger yeah. in. 
And then it minimizes oxygen. So it keeps the host alive, but unconscious while also delivering a cyanose based paralytic chemical to help sedate the host. Right. So it has one tube to deliver its egg into the host. It's got another tube going down the trachea where, so it's collecting oxygen from, you know, the external environment and then supplying oxygen to the host, like straight to the lungs using another, like, you know, breathing proboscis. So the alien is basically (laughs) serving as a ventilator. Right. But like, like a really, I'm just barely going to keep you alive type of like a ventilator. (laughs) Fair, fine. So once, and again, the cyanose-based paralytic chemical was invented for the movie, but there are a lot of nature-bound chemicals. In fact, most of our anesthesia has been derived from living creatures. And we've referenced in the past curare, which is from a Amazonian frog, I believe, and now used... And developed into like one of the major medications for anesthesia procedures. Once the facehugger has delivered its knot of xenomorph cells, uh, it, you know, will detach and die. Once the cells are in host, they have what's known in the movie as the DNA reflex, which means the xenomorph cells release their DNA and inject it into the host cells, which is why xenomorphs take on the characteristics of their host. So there's dog xenomorphs there's human-based xenomorphs there is a predator-based xenomorph if you saw alien versus predator so they kind of take on the features so they are best adapted to survive in their new host environment once they are fully born now this is actually the dna reflex is very similar to something that does exist in the world of bacteria which is called lateral gene transfer right so this is single cell to single cell where a bacteria can um, put out a conjugation tube. Yeah, it's kind of like a bacteria penis. (laughs) And it can recognize another bacteria, and it can shuttle DNA from one bacteria to the other, usually contained on circular pieces of DNA called plasmids. So we know that single-celled organisms like bacteria can do this, um, some fungi as well. But this is a little bit of a twist because it's, it's something new that even like known parasitic organisms, uh, like we're probably going to talk about, right, like wasps mm-hmm. and stuff soon, Josh, they do not do this to their hosts. They don't manipulate DNA. Right. So this is one of the things that makes aliens unique is that they have these bacterial type things. And lateral gene transfer is how a lot of bacteria have gained resistance to antibiotics because one bacteria survives, develops the genes that tell it how to survive, and then goes out drinking with all its other bacteria friends at the bar and says, hey, man, you want to know how to get past this? Take this reaches into its pocket, pulls out a plasmid, hands it off, and next thing you know, MRSA. (laughs) Exactly. So it may have been that that original colony of bacteria, the the sensitive Staph aureus, never had the resistance in the first place and was never exposed to the antibiotic that would have made it resistant. But instead, it acquires the ability to manufacture the, the... proteins that help it become resistant from the DNA or the blueprint of a totally like different bacteria. Before we had CRISPR, this is what we were doing to create early gene editing and treatments is we were taking uh, plasmids that we had created in a lab, putting them in viral vectors that we knew could penetrate into host's immune systems and delivering our own gene-based plasmid therapies. And in fact, Josh, a lot of how we deliver uh, gene therapies right now uses that exact same approach. Once you've had the lateral gene transfer, so the alien DNA is in the host, these cells that have host xenomorph hybrid DNA then begin to multiply uncontrollably like a cancer. So now we've moved from bacteria to tumor-based growth. So, you know, there's a lot of medical inspiration behind this alien takeover. Viruses do this all the time, right? So aside from bacteria, viruses get into human cells 
and they kind of act like a parasite this way, right? They they take take over our cellular functions to make the things that they need in order to replicate. They're hijacking our stuff, but they do it on a, a cell by cell level. It's it's very tiny. You can't do it like on a multicellular level. Some of these viruses, when they infect a cell, they become tumorogenic. And so there's a host of these, the most famous of these, and since we love to talk about STDs, is uh, HPV, human papillomavirus. And so anywhere on the skin, it can get in and cause a miniature tumor called a wart. Um, Or if it gets into cervical tissue, there's a few of these which have a predilection to cause cervical cancer, which is why it's so awesome that we have a vaccine against it right now. Um, But yeah, there's a host of these tumorogenic viruses, they'll damage the DNA of the host, but they won't be able to make like a whole new organism out of it. They'll just make a lump or, you know, a malignant spreading thing that'll eventually kill the host. It won't make like a new whole thing. And it's very slow growing. Most cancers happen over a matter of years and even the very fast ones happen over months uh, to years, whereas the creation from face hugger to chest burster is hours to days. Yeah, it's super quick, and so that you know, this is more akin to like building a whole new organism rather than you know just causing cancer to start to spread or a tumor. So it's uh, it's a really like specifically programmed process. And this is something we haven't discovered outside of the Now, the so chest far. burster will, you know, as its namesake implies, <laughs> explode out of the host, killing it. Right out of Jamie Farr. Killing yeah, absolutely. it. And that's why xenomorphs would technically be considered parasitoids rather than parasites. And then it'll run off somewhere to grow into an adult, uh, which happens, again, on the order of hours. So at that point, it's no longer medically equivalent because we don't have tumors jump out of our chest and go running down the halls of the hospital. <laughs> Maybe you don't know. I'm kidding. You're right. I'm not an ID, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, so Josh made a really cool, uh, you made a really cool distinction between parasite and parasitoid. A parasite technically needs to accomplish all of its life, you know, from, from the time it is, you know, kind of starts its life to all the way that when it dies inside of a, another host organism, meaning that it doesn't have an extra host life cycle or an independent life cycle. Um, the parasitoid organisms can have extra host or outside of the host uh, life cycles. Um, so they can have independent life cycles that don't require the host. And that's the case for the alien. Right. So... Now, the really neat thing about this is that a lot of these have real-world equivalents, as we've talked about. As I said, you know, you don't have a tumor jumping out of your chest and running down the hall screaming. But (laughs) there are creatures that, not in humans, thankfully, but do act as sort of this mind-controlling, taking over a host body and then using it to create young. Right. And the young are usually made... Or sorry, the younger made a hundred percent of the time from an egg uh, or something that's implanted, and it has its own DNA and building materials that it then kind of saps uh, raw materials to make energy to make the you know the little and baby speaking grow, of and one of the creatures that does that is your local, and you'll notice I didn't say friendly neighborhood wasp. Yep, there are actually Josh. There are if you wanted to, you know, name uh genuses of animals, right? And and pick like how many species there are. A parasitoid wasps are some of the they're the most species under one genus or yeah, under there's one There's a wasp group that injects like 80 some odd eggs into living caterpillars right. and the resulting larva devour the caterpillar's insides but then leave it uh-huh. alive and erupt out of its body and mind control the poor thing to protect them as they spin their cocoons. So chest bursting, real life. It totally is. Uh, there's a fun fungus named cordyceps, and I think we might have talked about cordyceps before. It's a total favorite amongst uh, parasite people. 
Cordyceps is a fungus. It'll get into animals like ants, and it will mind control zombie the ant to actually go and seek a high spot, like climb up a plant and find a high spot so that when the cordyceps actually grows out of the ant's forehead, Josh, when the fungus grows out of the ant's forehead and then opens up and starts to spore so it can spread out and, and send more fungi out into the air um, to be taken up by other ants, it has its highest vantage point, so it can catch <laughs> the breeze. And if that's not scary enough, there is a wasp that mind controls uh, a spider into spinning an orb to catch the wasp prey. Yeah, we haven't gotten into some of these. So there are plenty of parasites in humans and uh, as well, but I mean, none of them, from, you know, I think, babies. that burst out of <laughs> their host. But um, they they exit through another <laughs> orifice. They don't burst out. You're the a chest. terrible person. I will say, Josh, uh, we should bring up guinea worm um, because it does parasitize the host and then kind of bury its way out of the skin to make a little breathing hole. So that little guy does create a little burst, but it's a teeny tiny hole in the skin so that it can get out once it's mature. Huh. Um, so bot know. flies are all, you know, insects that can erupt out of humans in a non-fatal way, but no less disgusting for it. Yeah. <laughs> as far as we know, though, interestingly, um, those guys will kind of hang out in our skin. They'll, they'll consume some nutrients and grow into an adult form that can be free living for a little bit before it goes and, you know, puts eggs in, in a new human. However, we don't know of any so far um, that have direct like mind controlling ability. I do study toxoplasma. Toxoplasma is not a burster. It won't like burst out or any, anything like that. It's a single cell parasite. And there are quite a few experts in the fields of psychiatry and psychology who speculate that this little bug might uh, control us a little bit. I'll tell you in mice, Josh, this is so cool. If you infect a mouse with toxoplasma, right? Initially, the mouse normally is scared of cat urine because it's like, oh, there's a cat there. It wants to run away, right? When you infect the mouse with toxoplasma, the mouse is no longer afraid of the cat urine. So it's like all brave and like semi-suicidal. It's like, ah, oh, I don't care about cats anymore. And then that's what yeah, the toxoplasma and as wants. Knows, it wants cat to urine is by terrifying. So, but I think we've spent far, far too much time on <laughs> aliens. So, so uh, let's move on to our next let's let's go next issue have you seen batman the dark knight rises or oh, okay. uh, do you watch the show arrow on the cw i learned about our next subject watching ah. the much venerated batman the animated series um way back when yeah like the 80s and 90s that cartoon when we i was originally introduced to like the badassness of batman uh, and his nemesis, Rachel Ghoul, um, and what we're about to talk about in, in the animated series. And then I went back and actually read a couple of the Lazarus granting, pits. Or at least long health granting Lazarus ah. pits, as seen in Batman, the animated series, the Batman movies, and mm -hmm. uh, the CW Arrowverse, uh, used to resurrect Thea as well as Sarah Lance. Uh, now, they repair any damage done to the body and can magically reinitialize oh, nice. re life force as long as your body isn't too damaged, decayed, or suffering from terrible brain injuries. Because you won't get any weaker, yeah. you don't appear to age, <laughs> you're at peak physical capacity. Um, but there are a couple of quid pro quos. For example, you'll be insane when you're resurrected. So, you know, prepare for that contingency. Yeah. yeah, and it can help you seem almost <laughs> immortal to people who see you regularly because you won't get any weaker, you don't appear to age, you're at peak physical capacity. Um, but there are a couple of quid pro quos. For example, you'll be insane when you're resurrected. So, you know, prepare for that <laughs> contingency. Yeah, so I'm referring to, uh, you know, under the red hood, uh, I think one of the Robins died, right? I can't remember if it was Tim Drake. Jason Todd. 
Jason Todd, right. Tim Drake later got turned like semi into the Joker using genetic technology. Um, man, the Robins get the shit kicked out. Of them. They're like the Kennys um, of the Batman world. Yeah, it's not fair. Yeah. So Jason Todd, uh, yeah, Rachel Ghoul felt sad that Jason Todd had died. So he tried to put a dead person into the Lazarus pits. And that dude went insane, insane. So don't don't be putting dead people like all the way dead people into Lazarus pits. This is not Miracle Mac. But now, and a particular Lazarus pit in canon can only be used once, but its powers make it worth the effort. So any disease or biological issues are erased, and the body is restored to a perfect level of fitness and vigor. However, it is important to note that putting a healthy person into a Lazarus pit will instantly kill them. Oh, oh, that's interesting. I did not know about that. Yeah, so, you know, Lazarus pits are toxic to those in good health. So you have to actually have a true disease or be near to death and it's life extending. Now, they haven't really addressed that too much in the cartoon or Arrowverse yet, but it has been talked about several times in the comics and at one point, Batman and Bane went and shut down all of the, or closed all the Lazarus pits. It's almost like a very strong form of chemo. It's not ideal for anybody, but it can be lethal to somebody who's in otherwise good health. Okay, that's a, that's a pretty good analogy, because I was trying to figure out how this like magic juice figured out if a person was like healthy or not. But I think I can kind of get it if you, like say from a molecular standpoint... If you were doing something that was messing with cellular machinery in such a way that you were like rejuvenating and making someone healthier, if things were already working pretty well at peak, then, you know, you'd like overclock and you'd probably like just, you know, overrun the cellular machinery and just like push them straight to death. So that makes a little bit of sense. Well, if you think about telomeres... Santosh, as as one does, as one does, yes. <laughs> you know, the, during the process of aging, our cells lose a little bit more of themselves every time they divide. So they have a finite number of divisions. Uh, but if you, as you said, overclock that, then what you're doing, you know, if you have cells that are reset to the beginning and have had near the end of their divisions, then you are killing all the body's existing older aging cells and resetting that clock back to zero. But if you take a healthy person and do that, you're basically giving them a bunch of whole, a whole bunch of tumors, Deadpool style. Yeah. <laughs> Deadpool style. So it'd be cool if the death from the Lazarus pit, if you were healthy actually occurred with you just getting a bunch of cancer, like a, a bunch of malignant tumors. And that's what killed you. All the cancers. <laughs> just everything every tissue in you becomes malignant and then you go down that'd be crazy yes so actually it'd be really interesting to see wolverine or deadpool thrown into a lazarus pit but we'll never see that happen because dc marvel crossovers <laughs> crossover technology when will you be ours <laughs> so now i brought i bring up the lazarus pit because although it is technically as we said DC Universe chemo and handy to resurrect characters who have been out for a while because they're always finding new Lazarus mm -hmm. pits. I think Batman right. has one in like the Batcave as a jacuzzi now. Like he comes back after a hard day of fighting <laughs> and just takes a dip in it. <laughs> He's got to have something. I mean, Bane broke his back in half and Bruce Wayne was like, I'll oh, sign they got over that. They became besties. <laughs> uh, so. There is a the reason I bring up the whole idea of resurrecting from the dead is because there is some mad science by which people uh -huh. are trying to do something almost similar. And the idea of this trial run by Philadelphia based BioQuark is to inject stem cells into the spinal cords of people who have been declared clinically brain dead. Uh, now, that means their heart is still pumping, their body is functioning, but if you put an EEG, that's the one that reads brain activity on them, it's basically the equivalent of a flat line. You're not getting any kind of real feedback. Now, in addition to 
this stem cell spinal cord injection, they also get an injected protein blend, electrical nerve stimulation, and laser therapy directed at the brain. All of those words are true. Effective, we'll discuss in a moment. <laughs> but this is a real thing that people are want to do. And the ultimate goal of this study is to grow or to stimulate the growth of new neurons, spur them to connect to each other, and thereby bring the brain back to life. Now, just like a Lazarus pit, this won't really work on somebody who is completely dead, not almost dead, Princess Pride style, <laughs> not, not right. quite dead, as in Monty Python parrot. Dead. Yeah, not mostly dead, <laughs> um, but people who are only brain dead. Now, this, in theory, sounds great because we used to declare death as the ceasing of heart functionality, and then we found ways to resuscitate the heart. So it's not mm -hmm. inconceivable that there may be technology that could help spur new neuron growth in the brain. However, I don't think we're anywhere close to that yet. Yeah, as the results of this trial showed, which were... Well, this isn't the first start for the trial. It, it launched in Rudrapur, India in April 2016 and oh, okay. never really enrolled any patients. Uh, regulators shut the study down because... India's okay. drug controller general hadn't cleared it. Now, there's a supervillain name for you. I am the drug controller <laughs> general. Um, <laughs> but as I said. He made his way up from like drug controller corporal. Yeah. <laughs> Started as drug controller <laughs> private. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's when you just have like, you can only regulate like. I want to get into basic <laughs> drug henching, you know, work my way up. <laughs> Yo, do you hench? <laughs> yeah, I hench. <laughs> so the idea is that this combination of a peptide formula injected into the spinal cord from patients' stem cells, uh, which has been tested in animal models on traumatic brain injury, then followed by a nerve stimulation regimen and laser therapy over 15 days to spur these newly grown neurons to form connections, and then researchers will track EEGs for signs the treatment is working. Now, this is all based off the, a few studies that have found that cells from a part of the brain called the subventricular zone can grow in culture even after a person is declared dead. So they took brain cells from these brain dead people and managed to grow new neurons in a Petri dish. This is uh, part of the germinal matrix, Josh, that little, little, little babies have and fetuses actually when they're manufacturing and building their brain. This is kind of the vestigial part of that that we still have when we're adults. Right. So at the moment, they have not yet enrolled any patients of the 20. And part of that has to do with ethical issues like how do you complete trial paperwork when the person participating is legally dead? <laughs> well, because uh... it's not the same as cadaver. I mean, I guess if you've signed a form donating right. your body to science, then maybe. But you sure, can't sure. really enroll somebody. Like you don't have scientists hovering at the bedside, being like, "So you're dead now, <laughs> using that brain." Sure. <laughs> well, so this has to be a combination then of you know before brain death occurs, if you have the chance. Um, where you've signed, uh, you know, all your living will and everything saying that you'd like to donate your body to science, along with the consent and assent of your loved ones. So I, I think in order to be ethical about this, you'd need both parties. And before you get into ethical consent of loved ones, you also have to remember, you're growing brand new neurons and neurons are what form and ultimately somehow store memories in a way we don't understand. So even if Best case scenario, this does work. The person who sits up from that table, and I, I'm using that term very, very loosely, um, that, yeah, is yeah, yeah. not the same person. Like the, the first person who died is still dead. What you're doing is growing a brand new brain in an ideal vat and giving it a cyborg body yeah. to walk around in. <laughs> That's true. So it's very, very possible, just like, you know, in under the red hood for Batman, that you're going to get a completely different person in terms of, you know, what this person acts like, feels, or they may be a brand new person. They might like have none of their old memories or working abilities. You know, you might actually get like a, 
you know, say it's a 50-year-old who has brain death and then you revive them, you might get a 50-year-old baby. Yeah, so... Which is terrifying. <laughs> um, so I think it'll be interesting to see whether the study can actually enroll any patients. And if not, they should consider partnering up with our good old friend, Italian surgeon Sergio Canavero, who's still pushing his head transplant. <laughs> is he still trying to... He's no, not giving up, No, he? He, he's really got his head in the game. <laughs> he's forging ahead. <laughs> You know, we make fun mostly because a lot of these people are out of They call me salt. mad, but <laughs> I'll show them who's mad. <laughs> but I do want to make a case that um, if these kind of trials are ethically done and uh, we move forward with a lot of respect and understanding for what we're doing, you know, just like you said, Josh, there was a time when we thought when that heart stopped, it was over. And nowadays, you know, we can stop a heart, we can restart it in the middle of surgery, we can resuscitate people from complete cardiac arrest, uh, uh, rarely, but we can. Um, so I, I don't think this is outside of the realm of possibility, but we should proceed with caution. We are, however, years, I mean, growing a couple new neurons in a Petri dish is years and years away from jumpstarting a dead brain, Lazarus pit, yeah. or no. So. <laughs> I'd say decades, yeah. We're closer to the Star Wars back to tank, which we discussed a few right. episodes Right. Um, we're even closer to the head transplant than we are. Go, Dr. <laughs> Cannavara, go. <laughs> Keep your head in the game. So ah. <laughs> so let's, let's move on from that. But other trailers that is going to be premiering at this year's Comic-Con and that you may have seen in theaters is the upcoming Venom movie starring Tom Hardy. Oh, yeah, where he has that, like, weird New England accent that's even weirder than his Bane yeah, accent. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> I was just like, what are you, why, why are you talking like just, this? And, oh, it was, it was the weird New York accent. That's right, he was trying to talk like he was from Queens. I just, I would love it if he played Venom, like, uh, as Eddie Brock, but, like, as Bane. <laughs> <laughs> And so, like, Venom came out, and then he was like, well, Spider-Man. <laughs> Welcome, Spider-Man. Welcome, Webcrawler. Welcome to your nightmare. So, we're going to talk about the Venom symbiote, because unlike the Z alien xenomorph, which is a parasitoid, Venom is a true symbiote, which requires something from the host and gives something of benefit back to the host, which is the definition of a symbiotic relationship. Oh, and just for all you nerds out there, we're going to go ahead and stick with the new upcoming movie because our faith in the upcoming movie is way, way higher than our respect for like Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. Does not exist. Sorry, Tobes. <laughs> exactly. Um, anyway, so the first appearance of any symbiote, the Venom, was in Amazing Spider-Man number 252 in which Spider-Man thinks he's trying on like a new suit after secret wars like a black suit and then they find out reed richards is like nope you've been wearing a life form and peter parker's like Ugh. <laughs> yeah the super genius scientist peter parker is like that eh. super genius <laughs> but to be fair scientist. he's more of like a no, that's true. <laughs> and he's always more of like an electrical engineer, you know, uh, hardware type now, of guy. Fun fact, the concept of Venom was created by a Marvel Comics reader, and the publisher purchased the idea for $220. Uh, and the guy's just like, Spider-Man's a spider. Shouldn't he be black instead of red and blue? So, yeah, the whole concept <laughs> of Venom was from the fan base. Its symbiotes are known as, uh, come from a race called the Clintar which is from a planet of the same name in the Andromeda galaxy. And they are a benevolent species, which believes in helping others, which they do by creating heroes through the process of bonding to the morally and physically ideal. However, when they bond to hosts who have chemical imbalances or cultural malignancy, which they don't really define, but I think we all have a good idea of in today's 2018 <laughs> world these cultural yeah. malignancies or chemical imbalances can corrupt symbiotes and turn them into destructive parasites and that's what we kind of see with venom and carnage and toxin and the corrupted clintar now here's where it gets really interesting force their hosts to perform death-defying feats in order to feed off the resulting rushes of adrenaline and other hormones such as phenylethylamine this is canon 
Venom symbiotes live as active adrenal gland tumors. An adrenaline junkie. And uh, that's the, the corrupted ones. The other ones, it doesn't really go into what the Clintar feed off of, but the ones who are corrupted need that rush of adrenaline. So originally, the Venom symbiote was like obsessively in love with Spider-Man. And when he rejected it, it went from love to hate and then found Eddie Brock, who was also furious with Spider-Man and contemplating suicide. So in like this moment of weakness for both of them, they bonded and the symbiote became, you know, possessive and abusive. And it's later revealed that in addition to their enmity for Spider-Man, it stuck with Brock because of cancer of his adrenal glands. Oh, oh, so Brock actually, uh, as, uh, I'm Not guessing this is going to be a I little bit of a spoiler alert. This. Oh, gotcha. So he had an adrenal gland tumor. So, uh, you know, there's a few of those out there, like a pheochromocytoma, right. for instance. Um, and the, the Venom symbiotes yeah, like, yeah. basically use this as their lifeblood. So if that's why Brock could walk around without constantly jumping off buildings, because he had this tumor producing nonstop food supply for the symbiote. So what does the symbiote suit actually do? Well, each symbiote's a little bit different, but most of them have super strength, uh, genetic memory, which will be important in, in a moment, a 360 perception. It doesn't have eyeballs as such, it, although it can form them. It sees all around, and it gives negation of damage, but not true healing. So paralyzed people can walk. Amputees can grow legs, like when Flash Gordon took the symbiote, and it grew legs for him. It doesn't actually heal and give him legs. It serves as his legs so it grows symbiote legs that when the symbiote is inside him are not present as well as camouflage and shape-shifting so every symbiote's a little bit different but they all share a genetic lineage and memory so venom and all its descendants toxin carnage uh scream and a couple of the others who i forget all possess the ability to bypass the spider sense because the original symbiote was attached to Peter Parker. It took his genetic information and spider powers, which means you're going to love this nerdiness, Santosh. When Venom attacks Peter, the symbiote attacking Peter would essentially be Peter attacking himself, which wouldn't set off his spider sense. Oh, that's brilliant. Okay, so that's why he's kind of, I mean, to, to use, you know, it's like a kryptonite. You know, for his spider sense, because it's and that's why Peter has such a hard time. Or it's not autoimmune; it's actually re- it's a disguising itself as self. So it's the opposite. It's like cloaking itself in its hosts. Uh, in this case, like DNA. So <laughs> Peter is actually like kind of freaked out because I was like, "Why am I sensing this dude? It feels like perfectly fine with this guy trying to punch me in the yeah, face." Yeah, so that's why. I guess um, that. Now. You know, Going with this crazy, you know, carrying forward, later on in the comics, they introduced a few other uh, Clintar who became Anti-Venom and the Poisons. Now, Anti-Venom, who is Eddie Brock's current symbiote incarnation, bind... Now, here's... Again, they really go in-depth at these. The Anti-Venom symbiote binds with white blood cells of previously infected venom symbiote hosts so even when spider-man and eddie both got rid of the venom symbiote it had bonded with them to the point that it was little bits of it or Mm -hmm. chunks were circulating around in their blood so even though yeah just like kind of a residual infection uh like you know a a hepatitis sure Um, sure. and i say hepatitis because the anti-venom symbiote as it binds with the white blood cells of previously infected hosts, cures injection drug users of hepatitis. That is in the comics. Anti-venom cures <laughs> hepatitis. Uh, which, now this is interesting nice. because often That's that will really accompany nice. HIV in actual. A lot of people who have HIV via drug injection, and even ones who uh, uh, picked it up in other methods, can often see hepatitis as a co-infection. So anti-venom rids opiate addicts of urges to use drugs, uh, cures radiation poisoning, which is actually important because radiation poisoning is particularly important for Spider-Man, who mutated in response to a bite by a radioactive spider. So anti-venom can also negate Spider-Man's powers. Well, okay, but this doesn't make so much sense, right? Because 
it's it's radiation damage that's already been oh, he he never got irradiated. Uh, if you himself, recall, right? Santoshi in Comic Book Medicine mutation? One, we talked about how Peter Parker's radioactive yeah. sperm gave Mary Jane cancer. Okay, so it's, so there's it's, some like ongoing radiation, low levels of radiation, and survive. But this is this is kind of scary for Peter, though, right? As Spider Man, if he wants to keep being Spider Man, because. This isn't undoing his powers like temporarily. This is taking them away because this is changing his DNA then back to Which is a like storyline that they have not at status. this time explored. But if you want to carry that theory forward, yes, the okay. anti-venom would potentially be able to unspider Spider-Man. But I thought that it was really interesting that they're talking about anti-venom curing users of hepatitis and binding with white blood cells because I found a really interesting paper that drew parallels between the Spider-Man story arc and the HIV epidemic of the early 80s. Oh, sure. So HIV does this. HIV is a retrovirus. Um, You know, there's... Uh, there's a few that we know of, but HIV is one. There's another family called HTLV, called human T-cell lymphos- uh, leukemia virus. And, you know, both of them, they bind to receptors on white blood cells. But then what they do is they don't stick to the white cell as a whole. They invade the white cell. They replicate themselves as they want to do. But then as the immune system fights back, what happens is... Um, HIV is able to archive a copy of its own self in the DNA of the host. So it makes a little copy of itself and it sticks that copy now, in the genome. The, of it's the a host really fascinating cell. paper and we'll link to it in the show notes, but there's a lot of great parallels. For example, the suggestive physical confrontation between Eddie Brock and his prison cellmate, Cletus Cassidy, who becomes infected via Eddie Brock. So HIV was rampant in prisons at the time. And Cletus Cassidy is said to have acquired his symbiote infection via a skin cut that was exposed to Eddie's recently spilled symbiote positive blood. Oh, okay. So hematogenous transmission, just like HIV. HIV itself, the symbiote needs a host to survive, cannot live outside bodies for long, and so seeks new hosts and is constantly mutating into more virulent forms. So this made a really good argument to show that the Venom symbiote was a great parallel to HIV, with Peter Parker initially contracting it, and then as they began to find heart treatment was around the same time in the comic world that he got rid of the black suit, and instead it went to Eddie Brock, and Eddie Brock transferred it in prison to Carnage, and then it mutated and formed all these new forms. So if you look at it in terms of HIV, which, you know, even the creator said was never their intention, but it does have some remarkable parallels. That's really, really cool. Yeah, I, uh, of course, there's going to be like, you know, real world differences versus the comic books. Um, but I, I think it's neat. Marvel especially has kind of a cool history of kind of reflecting what's going on in the real world in their comics. Um, civil so rights, et cetera. That's, that's but the this venom is a symbiotes. Really cool we've talked example. about symbiotes. We've talked about parasitoids. And I figured, what the hell? Let's throw in a quick little Star Wars reference before closing things out. Uh, I'm sure you remember everybody's favorite movie Yay! from Star Wars. Uh, and that would be, oh, what was the first one? It was the, the prequels about Anakin. The new, A New Hope. Oh, God damn. Phantom Menace. And and it had the fan-favorite character, Jar Jar Binks. I'm going to hang up now. Well, before you do, we're going to talk about how Jar Jar Binks is, along with most of the (laughs) Nabataeans, Nabudians, Gungans, the Gungans, uh, all suffer from (laughs) a terrible fungal infection. (laughs) Well, if we're shitting on the Gungans, I'm happy. If you look, I I don't know how much you remember (laughs) Jar Jar or what the Gungans look like, but if you recall, a lot of them have these very elaborate circular whirls and loops and raised patterns all over their skin. Initially, we were made to think, oh, yeah, it's like cool alien skin designs. But no, there is a fungal disease, Tinea (laughs) imbricata, which is a superficial fungal infection indigenous to Polynesia and Melanesia. Uh, Also, and in several other 
humid tropical regions that has a very ornate appearance composed of concentric circles and polycyclic or serpent-like scaly plaques that cover the entire body. It'll involve very large surfaces like an entire limb or the side of the trunk, or if not treated, nearly the entire surface of the body. And as the advancing rings spread, their regularity is modified by the shape of the body parts they're on, the nature of the skin they travel over, and by encountering other systems of rings. So it's like an ongoing crafting mosaic. So... Every Gungan they encounter has a different pattern of whorls because they've all been infected, which means at some point this disease transferred possibly from humans to Gungans or that this is a native infection to any kind of tropical region. So I can include links in the show notes, but I encourage you to go Google Tinea imbricata or the disease is called Tokelau, T-O-K-E-L-A-U, and then compare it against a picture of Jar Jar. And you can console yourself in the fact that even if you don't like him, he does have a terrible fungal infection, which is non-fatal, but probably very itchy and distracting. Yeah, which is probably nice that they're like aquatic because, you know, like... Yeah, salt water always makes things feel better. Soothing. That's it for this week, folks. <laughs> no just the tip because I'm too busy geeking out at Comic-Con. Oh, Go see San Diego. There's Go always a whole bunch of non-convention center-based <laughs> activities, a whole bunch of people in cosplay or costume play. And if you see me there, give a wave. I will be dressed as Dr. Stranger Things. Oh, man. That's it for this week. As always, folks, we love to hear your comments, <laughs> questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. Our theme music is produced by Rachel. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. All the info and sources that we use to create this show can be found in your local comic book shop, but sources will also be in the show notes. And until next time, as <laughs> always, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Sure, we are good. We're good. You just turned into a cartoon character. <laughs> Artificial sarcastic laugh. Excelsior. <laughs> <laughs> catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hi this is Paige from giggly squad and i want to talk to you about splash refresher and my water intake okay so you guys obviously know that i'm a hydrated girly but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like i need something to spice it up that's why i love splash refresher It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you.